So last week, we um, left off in Judges chapter 6. And as you remember, the Lord commanded Gideon to go home and to tear down the altars of Baal and Asherah. And you remember Gideon did exactly that, but he did it at nighttime because he was afraid of the people. He was afraid of what the people might do to him when they saw him tearing down their gods. So he sneaks in at nighttime, he takes in the bull, he, he tears down the altars, he burns them, he sacrifices this animal, and the next morning the people come out and they're outraged, they're furious, they wanted to put Gideon to death. They said, Gideon, what were you thinking? You, you killed God, right? You destroyed our gods. And Gideon's dad stands up and he says, listen, Baal's a god, right? If so, let Baal deal with Gideon himself. You guys don't take matters into your own hands. And about that same time, we learned that the Midianites, that they're gathering on the edge of Israel on the borders, getting ready to invade. We find this, this coalition of different tribes gathered ready to just to mob Israel, to plunder the nation. And remember, as, the, as chapter six closes out, Gideon asks God for further confirmation about his calling. And you remember the fleece incident, right? Gideon says, look, Lord, I still, I still have questions. I still have doubts. If you're really calling me to, to, to set the people free, how about this? I'm going to take a piece of wool and I'm going to lay it on the ground. And in the morning, I want the wool to be wet and the ground to be dry. The next morning, Gideon gets up. Remember, it says that the piece of wool was so wet, he had to wring it out and it filled up a whole bowl. And Gideon says, well, it could have been an accident. It could have been coincidence. So how about this, Lord? Don't be mad, but tonight, let's flip it around. Tonight, I want the wool to be dry and the ground all around it to be wet. And remember, the Lord was gracious and he gives Gideon yet another sign despite Gideon's lack of faith. And so that sort of brings us up to chapter seven here. And we pick up the text, uh, Judges chapter seven, verse one. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the, in the valley. Now remember at this point, Gideon had blown his trumpet. He had issued the call to arms. He had sent word to all the surrounding tribes that they were to send their men in and come join in the battle. And so everyone gathers around in this, in this big encampment. And the Midianites, it says, they're encamped in the valley a little ways away. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me, to give to the Mid for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. 
So look at the situation here. Gideon has about 32,000 soldiers who have gathered up around him to fight the Midianites. And later on, we're gonna learn that the Midianites at this point had about 135,000 soldiers. They had a much larger force. So it's about four to one odds right now, right? And the Lord calls Gideon and says, listen, buddy, I'm not too happy about the number of troops you have. And Gideon says, well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned it. Me too, Lord. Four to one, those are pretty long odds. We could use a few more. And the Lord says, well, the thing is, you have too many. He says, if you win with those 32,000 troops, your guys are gonna be like, see what we did? See what mighty warriors we are? So I want you to tell the people, if you're scared, just go home. If you're scared, we don't need you here. And he says, let them hurry away from Mount Gilead. Now this reminds me a little bit of Deuteronomy chapter 20. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, the Lord lays out some of the, some of the rules concerning military service. And starting in verse five, he says this. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. Is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed the wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers, verse eight, shall speak further to the people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. So Lord says, look, if anybody's recently built a house or a vineyard or you're a newlywed, or even if you're just scared, don't join in the battle. The Lord says, stay home because the Lord is the one who brings the victory anyway. And so Gideon says, look, are you guys scared? If you're scared, just head home. You're, you're, you're free to go. Why do you suppose the Lord sent home the men who are scared? Why were the, the fearful ones exempt from battle in Deuteronomy 20? I think it says it right there in verse eight. He says that, that fear and doubt, uncertainty, it's contagious. He says, let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. Right? Fear, it spreads. Fear is contagious. And, 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 and these battles that the people were engaging in, it wasn't just war. Right? These battles were, were an act of faith. They had to step out in faith in these long odds to serve the Lord. Right? And it's been said that, that fear and faith can't grow in the same heart. Right? They, they, they're at battle against each other. 
And so Gideon here, he releases everyone who's afraid. He releases everyone who, who didn't trust in the Lord. And 22,000 men leave. So he's got 10,000 men left. And I think these are probably the guys who are all the way in the back. The guys who couldn't hear Gideon. They stayed. And so it was 12 to 1 odds at this point. Gideon, I don't know exactly what he says. He's probably thinking, okay, Lord, this is tough. But 12 to 1, with your help, I think we can still find victory. We can still overcome. And the Lord said to Gideon, verse 4, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, you shall, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So again, the Lord here, he says, well, Gideon, look, here's the deal. You still have too many warriors. We still need to, we need to trim it down a little bit. So I have a little test that's going to determine who's going to go and who's going to stay. And so in verse 5, it says this. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, very descriptive, says, you shall sit by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the Lord says, all right, here's what we're going to do. I want you to give them all a, a good drink of water. And everybody who, who, who puts their face right in the water and drinks it like a dog, you're going to send them home. And everybody who bends over and, and scoops the water into their mouth, they're going to stay and fight with you. And I'm going to use those men to deliver you guys from the Midianites. And as we see, out of these 10,000 soldiers, 9,700 of them put their face down in the water like a dog. And they're sent away. 300 remain. So now we're at 450 to 1 odds. And maybe you've heard this passage taught like this. You know, the preacher says, the 300 who, who didn't put their faces in the water, it's because they wanted to be ready for battle. It's because they were maintaining situational awareness, right? They wanted to keep their eyes up because they're, they're scanning the, the area for enemies. Have you ever heard anybody teach that? A few of us have, right? You know, I, I think I've even taught that probably, right? That these 300 that were left Right? These, are the, these are the elite military guys. These are the, the King Leonidas and, and the 300 Spartans. These are, these are the mighty warriors, the Navy SEALs of the day. But that doesn't really fit the narrative, does it? The Lord picks the weakest man from the weakest tribe. They gather up a force of 32,000 he slims it down to 10,000 
and then he slims it down to 300 so the people don't get the credit. Does it make sense that the Lord would then change his strategy and choose the strongest 300 when he's been going weakest to weakest to weakest? And all of a sudden he takes the, the 300 strongest warriors? John Corson suggests this, and I tend to agree. He says, these 300 were the 300 guys who were so old and so fat and so broken, they couldn't get down that low to put their faces in the water. All they could do was, was scoop it up. They all had bad knees and bad backs. And I think that that, it seems like it fits the pattern a little bit better, doesn't it? Does it make sense that the Lord narrows it down from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300 only to pick the 300 best, smartest, fastest warriors? And it seems like that's not usually how the Lord works. And I think of David and Goliath, right? The Lord uses the weakest to defend, to defeat the world's most powerful. And so I tend to agree with John Corson. I think these 300, they look less like the 300 Spartans and more like the water aerobics team at the senior center. And I, and I don't mean anything bad about the water aerobics team. I'm thinking about joining. But the point is, the Lord is slimming this army down to impossible numbers so that there is zero question about who's actually doing the work here. And we see over and over again in Scripture, the Lord uses the most improbable people and the most improbable situations to accomplish His will, doesn't He? I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 27, and this is a glorious verse. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth here. And he says this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I'm pretty sure that the Lord put that verse in there just for those of us who are in ministry, right? Just to sort of keep us in check a little bit. You know, sometimes, you know, things are going well in ministry and you start to think, man, the Lord's using me to accomplish this. You know, look, look at me, here I am. And Paul says, oh, hold on a second. The Lord specifically chooses the weak and foolish things of the world to accomplish his will so nobody mistakes who's actually doing the work. Verse eight. So the people took the provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So everybody else leaves. It's just these 300 guys here with, with back and knee issues. They're all too tired and weak to walk home. They all say, well, we're here, we're not leaving. And so they're camped out above the Midianite encampment, the Midianite base there. And the same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go, go, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go to the camp with Pura, your servant. 
and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. So again, the Lord is very gracious here to Gideon and his weak faith. He says, here's the deal, Gideon. You have two options. You can trust me, and we can go right now, and I will give you a mighty victory over the Midianites. He says, look, I've already given them into your hand. We, we, you, can, you, can, you can snatch up the victory. You can take it right now if you want to. And let me just say this. I think that the Lord, I think that he's speaking to some of us right now. Some of us have some major obstacles in our lives. Some of us have some really hard stuff going on in our lives. Some of us have issues. We have things that, that seem insurmountable. Some, some of us have things in our lives that look hopeless. They're desperate. They're out of control. And I think the Lord is saying to some of us right now that victory is available to us if we want it. Victory is available if we'll reach out and take hold of it. If we have the courage to trust in the Lord, if we have the courage to lay hold of his promises, if we have the courage to walk by faith, we'll receive victory. But as we see in verse 11, the Lord says, listen, if not, Gideon, if you're not ready yet, if you're not in that place yet, I have plan B. And it's not as good as plan A, but it'll still work. You can take your servant, pour a down with you to the Midianite camp. And when you get down there, I'm going to give you a sign. And Gideon, of course, he opts for plan B. Now keep in mind with Gideon, this is Gideon's, at least his fourth sign, right? Remember the Lord burned up his sacrifice. We already talked about the two fleece things. Right? So this is the fourth time that the Lord has to give Gideon a sign. And this isn't even including the fact that the Lord is speaking to Gideon. The Lord is telling Gideon all these things. Right? So this, this isn't a proud moment for Gideon. Gideon says, yeah, I, I think I need another sign. Let me take Porah and we're going to go down to the camp and hear what they have to say. And the Midianites, verse 12, and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, there's a lot of beholds going on here. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So verse 12 gives us some insight into the size of the camp here, right? It says that the people were like locusts in their abundance. And again, we talked about this before. Locust doesn't really mean a lot to us. It's just a, it's a big grasshopper. But in that region, 
they would have these swarms of locusts that would be miles wide and miles deep. And these swarms of locusts, they come through and they would consume everything in their path. Anything that was organic, anything that was green, they would just consume it. And when all the resources were gone, they would move on. And that's what he says that these Midianites are like here. That's the imagery that he's giving us. These Midianites, they would come in in these, in these massive groups. They would come in in these great multitudes and they would just consume everything that was in front of them. And as soon as all the resources were gone, they would, they would move on to another area. What would happen is this group of people was so big, right, their ecological footprint was so large that they couldn't stay in one place for too long. There weren't enough resources locally to support this big of a group. So they just kept moving from place to place to place, consuming everything in front of them, moving on to, to greener pastures. And it says that their camels were without number, and they were like the sand on the seashore. Right? And this is a little bit of hyperbole here. He's simply saying that there were so many camels and so many people, they couldn't even count them all. And as Gideon approaches the camp, and, you know, and, and I wonder about this, how did he approach the camp? Right? Did, did him and his servant, did they have little ghillie suits on and they're creeping up? Or do they have disguises? Or were the Midianites just so secure that they didn't care? You know, people could just come and go. We don't know exactly what the situation was, but somehow Gideon and his servant, they get to the edge of the camp and there's two soldiers there and they're having a conversation. And the first one says, behold, I dreamed a dream. Behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. Dreams are weird, aren't they? I have weird dreams all the time. The other day, I dreamt that I was here at church and I was getting ready to preach and my notes were lost. And so I thought in my dream, I'm just gonna, that's cool, I've got my study down, I'm just gonna teach it. And we are in Judges 6 in my dream and I open up my Bible and I can't find the book of Judges anywhere. And I'm like looking forward and then I couldn't remember my notes. And it was just, it was just a, those are the kind of nightmares that pastors have. Now, I don't think that there was any spiritual significance to my dream at all. I think I probably had a little too much curry the night before. You know, it was just a weird dream. And most dreams, I think, are just weird dreams. But sometimes the Lord does speak to his people in dreams. And, and this dream, there was a spiritual application to it. The guy, he says, yeah, I was fast asleep. I was all snuggled up. And he says, behold, a big old piece of cornbread came rolling down the hill. And it rolled right into camp, rolling through all the tents, knocking them over. Now, it's worth noting here when he says the barley cake came rolling down. Barley cake was, it was actually, it was similar to cornbread. And it was something that only the very poor ate. It was a very coarse, rough kind of food. And you only ate it if you were really hungry and you just wanted to fill your belly up. It wasn't good. It wasn't particularly nutritious. 
It was just something to eat so you didn't starve. And Spurgeon notes that this signifies that the Midianite army would be destroyed by humble means. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen. And verse 14, you know, it's a little bit of a mystery to me. His comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given unto his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, I wonder, did he actually know who Gideon and Joash were? Or did he just say this, you know, sort of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? I I don't know. But one way or another, at that exact moment that he's talking about this and he says this, Gideon happens to creep up to the edge of camp. It's quite a coincidence, isn't it? Gideon gets there and hears them talking about him, how Gideon is going to destroy their camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Think about how Gideon must have felt here. The encouragement that he must have felt knowing that God was and God is in control of all things at all times, right? It wasn't by mere coincidence that Gideon happened to creep up to the camp at that exact moment, right? That was God's sovereign divine plan. And Gideon recognized that. And in response, in response to God's goodness and God's grace and God's sovereignty, what does Gideon do? What's what's his reply? He worships God. He recognizes the grandeur and the majesty and the glory of God and all that he can do is worship. He recognizes that God is for him, that God is in control and that God has a plan for his victory. Even in the darkest moments, even when things look hopeless, God had a plan for Gideon's victory. If only we could remember that in our darkest moments. If only we could remember that God is absolutely sovereign all the time, that he's completely in control of all things all the time. If only we could remember that God is for us and not against us. How that would change our mindset, wouldn't it? If only we could keep on the forefront of our minds that God has a plan and his plan His ultimate, eternal plan is victory for his people. Even if we can't see it yet, even if we don't understand it yet, God is in control. And so Gideon is in that place where he doesn't know how the victory is going to be won yet. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he knows that God is in control. And so he goes back to his camp, greatly encouraged. And he goes and tells his guys, he says, look, God has spoken to me. God has shown me that we have this. He's given the enemy into our hands. Now, this story reminds me just a little bit of the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. 
And I'm not going to go through the whole story, but it's found there in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Remember Jonathan and his armor bearer, they're out on patrol. And they sort of stray away from the parameters of their mission. Jonathan, you know, they're young men, and as young men are prone to do, Jonathan says, let's, let's go on an adventure. Let's go over and look at the enemy. Let's see how strong they are. And Gideon and his armor bearer, they get there, remember? And through a series of events, Jonathan and his armor bearer end up slaying about 20 of the Philistine enemy. And before they attack, Jonathan says this in verse six. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And I love that attitude that Jonathan has there. He says, the Lord can deliver his people using a great army, or he can deliver his people using the two of us. And Jonathan says, look, maybe we're the few. Maybe we're the couple of guys that the Lord wants to use. And with that attitude, with that heart, the Lord wins a great victory through them. And we sort of see the same thing here with Gideon. It says in verse 16, and he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon, he takes his, his 300 mighty men and he divides them into three task forces. And what does he hand out? A little Bengay, some ibuprofen, gets them all ready to go. Right? They get their knee braces and they get ready for battle. And what does he do? It says he gives every man a trumpet, an empty jar, and a torch says, let's go to war. Now, I know there's a lot of military veterans in our, in our, in our fellowship here. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not. I don't know a lot about military stuff. But I know enough to know that this isn't a typical military loadout, right? Usually you don't go into battle with a saxophone, a mason jar, and a flashlight. And this is not what you take with you. But this is exactly what Gideon does, isn't it? He gives him a torch, a jar, and a trumpet. And says, let's go fight. When we get close, he doesn't give him all the instructions. He says, I want you to do exactly what I do. And I think Gideon doesn't give them all the instructions because Gideon doesn't know what's going to happen at this point. Right? Gideon is still a little bit in the dark. I don't think the Lord has laid out the whole plan. He's just giving Gideon the, the first couple steps. And I know that so often that's how it is in our, in our walking with the Lord, in our service to the Lord, right? The Lord, he doesn't lay out his whole plan before us, does he? He just gives us a few steps. And when we walk in obedience, he continues to show us. And so this is exactly where these 300 men were. And maybe Gideon too, right? They didn't know the whole plan. 
They only do, knew what they were supposed to do next. And I think if the Lord had revealed the whole plan, they would have said, this is insane. We're, we're not doing this. This will never work. Right? If the Lord had revealed the whole picture to them, they would have been crippled by their own doubt and their lack of faith. And so Gideon says, all right, here's what we know. We're going to get close. And when I blow my trumpet, you blow your trumpet and just do whatever I do, Gideon says. Now, again, I'm not a military man, but I know that's not generally a good strategy. Going into battle, just, just look at me. Whatever I do, you guys do that. And then shout out for the Lord and for Gideon. That's all I know so far, he says. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So here's the scene, right? In the middle of the night, these three companies, these 300 guys, they, they, they creep up to the camp. And I imagine that security wasn't too tight. I mean, who's going to attack the Midianites at this point? So they get close and they begin to blow their trumpets. And then Gideon, I guess under inspiration from the Lord, he, he, he smashes his jar. And all the other guys see that and they all smash their jars. Now, remember, we saw earlier that the guys had these torches that were lit inside the jars. So they smash the jars. There's this loud noise. Suddenly there's, there's 300 torches surrounding the camp. And the men all begin to blow their trumpets. And they sound this battle cry. Verse 21. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Manolah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So you see what happens here. All right, the guys creep up. They break their jars. And in all that cacophony of the, of the trumpets blowing and the breaking of the jars and the men yelling, all the Midianites, they jump up and they began to run. Why? Well, from what I understand, typically when an army was attacking, each company of soldiers would have one guy who would lead with a torch. And they would have one guy who would blow the trumpet and sound the call to battle. So, so they hear 300 trumpets blowing and they see 300 torches and what do they naturally assume? There's 300 companies of men moving against them. But also note, it says that the hand of the Lord was in this. It says in verse 22, the Lord set every man's sword 
against his comrade. So the Lord sowed these seeds of, of confusion among the enemy. And they all start fighting each other and they begin to flee. Verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, go down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. They captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. That was convenient, wasn't it? And Zeb, they killed at the wine press of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Sort of a, sort of a grisly end of the story, isn't it? The enemy is defeated. The men of Ephraim are pursuing them. They catch the two leaders. They chop off their heads and they bring them to Gideon. Let's pray. Now, let's remember a couple of things as we close here. First, the Lord wants to grant his people victory. But we have to be willing to lay hold of that victory. The Lord wants to work in our lives. He wants to set us free, but we have to be willing to lay hold of that freedom. You know, I just, as we were, um, as we were, kind of finishing our meet and greet time. My iPad was back in the office and I walked through there and my son Elias has this little um, certificate from this, this skydiving thing that he went on. And on the skydiving thing, I just happened to glance at it and it said, this certifies that Elias Meyer has experienced the ultimate freedom of tandem skydiving. I thought, you know, that's cool, but that's not the ultimate freedom, is it? That ultimate freedom comes from walking with the Lord. Ultimate freedom, real, meaningful, lasting freedom comes from trusting in the Lord and allowing him to set you free from those things that hold you in bondage. Second, the Lord uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. The Lord uses the weak things of the world to accomplish his will, to accomplish his plans. And frankly, for most of us, that's good news because that's where most of us are. You know, and the Lord wants to use us if we're willing to be used. Third, God is absolutely sovereign. God is completely in control all the time even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it yet, God is in control. And that should inspire joy. That should inspire trust. That should inspire hope in your soul. Lastly, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. It says, Paul says this. He says, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul says, the same God who spoke and said, let there be light. He says, that same God has shown his light into our hearts. He's shown that light into our lives through the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse seven, we're like earthen vessels and we're hiding this great light. We're hiding this great treasure within us. Does that imagery ring any bells? Earthen vessels, clay jars, holding a torch inside of them? Isn't that what we just saw here in Judges chapter seven? Now look what Paul says in verse eight. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul says, look, you guys are being afflicted in every way, but you're not crushed unto death yet. You're perplexed, you don't understand, but you're not in despair. You might be persecuted, but you're not forsaken by God. You might be struck down. You might be knocked down by life, but you're not destroyed. Now remember in our story, it's when the earthen vessels were struck, it's when the earthen vessels were broken that the light was revealed, right? These jars are broken, and all of a sudden, that, that the light of those torches became visible. And I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. We, as Christians, you know, Paul describes this as earthen vessels containing this glorious light within us. And when we get beat up, when we're persecuted, when we're afflicted, when we're struck, guess what? Sometimes cracks start to form, don't they? And guess what shines through those cracks? The light of God shines through us when we're struck, when we suffer, when we're persecuted, when we go through trials and tribulations. And I love that idea. I love the imagery here in Judges 6. It isn't until the jars are struck that that light is fully revealed. Remember that. When, when trials and tribulations come, when hard times come, church, that's an opportunity for us to shine for Jesus. Jesus. 